All right, good morning. Everyone awake? All of you people who stayed out last night eating pizza, drinking beer. It's the same thing my students do when they come to class at 8 o'clock. <laughs> Think, what do I need to do to wake you all up? Thank God for coffee. Thank God for coffee, yes. Um, well, good morning. It's good to be here again with you. I feel like I was just here, <laughs> and I was only a few hours ago. <laughs> this is a gift, though. Yesterday, we spent our time looking at what I have called Paul's narrative of glory in Romans. I suggested to you that Paul tells the story of how humanity was originally crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over the works of his hands, as we just read in Psalm 8. So fun to see it up there in the music worship setting. I then suggested that in Romans 1.23 and 3.23, Paul says that humanity abdicated its throne of glory, its intended vocation of rule. And it exchanged or lost the glory of God, not this visible splendor or radiance, or even simply the manifest presence of God, though both of those might be there, they are symbolizing this much greater reality, which is our vocation. But we gave up the exalted position as king and ruler in which we were originally meant to share. But Paul writes of this hope of glory that we have in 5.2 and says in 2, 7, and 10 that humanity will again receive this glory and honor and peace, those who work for good. That is to say that humanity would again be appointed as their God-ordained vicegerents or representatives of him to the world around them, having dominion as his representatives. Nowhere does this reappointment to glory become more evident than in Romans 8, the place where nearly every topic in Pauline theology can begin and end, and somehow be in the beginning or in the middle as well. Uh, it's really quite remarkable, actually, when you start diving into Romans 8, and you also have a sense of all the different questions that can surround Paul and Paul's theology, how somehow they find their place in Romans 8. So this morning, that's where we're going. We're going to make sense of this renewal of glory in that chapter. And when we make sense of this renewal of glory, we will then also at the same time make sense of the phrase conform to the image of God's son in Romans 8.29. So the four lectures that I'm giving here this week stem essentially uh, kind of from excerpts of my PhD thesis that will be published here in a couple months with IVP Academic. So if you want to read more about it, if you want to go back to those texts, you'll can find it on Amazon for pre-order. <laughs> but what we're doing is the beginning and the end. In the thesis for the PhD or this book now, really looking at glory in the Septuagint and in uh, Romans and this overarching narrative is the beginning. And then at the end, it is what we're going to talk about today, participating in the 
rule of Christ and then what that looks like, and that will be tomorrow's. But what I'm skipping over are two major topics that uh, simply there's not time for here today, um, sorry, this week, but really are nevertheless absolutely essential for understanding what we're doing. And those two topics are thinking more closely about the image language uh, and sonship language and then this larger theology of participation. Uh, Adam has mentioned it a little bit in talking about Bart, if we are in Christ, then we have this new reality. We have been reconciled to God and questioning what does that mean then? So a, a lot of space gets dedicated to this idea of participation and it's nothing new I'm guessing for most of you. Um, I know uh, Julie Canlis, that's her name, who I was talking with earlier at breakfast, um, Julie mentioned or you know, kind of brought the idea of participation in Calvin several years ago, and um, it's now a, quite a, a large topic within Pauline studies because for Paul, it is the heart of his theology. So I want to give a, a few quick blurbs on those topics, the things that I'm skipping over before we are able to launch fully into, into Romans 8. So the first thing, the image of the sun. Reminder, Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And that's where our conversation usually ends, right? Foreknowledge, predestination, ooh, what do these mean? And then time runs out and we move on to other things. But we're skipping that. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many children. In the chapter that I'm skipping, I talk about this use of the term firstborn, prototokos. And I argue that it's functioning for Paul in two major ways. The first way that it's functioning for Paul is that it's a term that he uses to connect the person of Jesus with the firstborn kind of trope throughout the Old Testament. The first part of the trope comes from Exodus. When God sends Moses to Egypt to free his people, he tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So we begin even to get uh, evidence, um, um, information that we can use to say, how is Jesus going to be right, this new Israel of sorts? If Israel originally is God's firstborn son, all of them as a collective group, is God's child, his firstborn son, then in Psalm 89, verses 20 through 29, it goes from Israel to more specifically King David. He says, the psalmist writes, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep forever, keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. 
I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Clearly, a psalm commenting on the Davidic covenant when God comes to David and promises a son that will have a throne for eternity. But here, specifically in the psalm, that son is identified as the firstborn, right? So we have this narrowing. We go from all of Israel to the Davidic person. And of course, Paul is going to read that in addition to gospel writers and others in the New Testament and recognize that Jesus the Son of God, is the one to come, the Son of David to come. He is the firstborn Son. He is the chosen one from among the people. So that's, I think, the first way, and and that can be expanded into a massive, uh, you know, we could do a whole week of lectures just on that information alone. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What does it mean for Jesus to be the King that was meant to come in the line of David. Uh, you know, when Jesus is walking uh, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and they say, son of David, what, what do they mean? Why are they equating Jesus with the son of David? All of that is behind this idea of him being the firstborn. Because he is the representative of all of Israel, who's represented by King David, who then is now the son of David, who will have a throne as the days of the heavens. So that's the first way that firstborn is being used in Romans 8.29. He'll be the firstborn of many children. The second way that firstborn and son are brought together is for Jesus, not just as the Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus who is the Messiah, right? Jesus who is the king meant to come. Jesus who is the Davidic king But also, for Paul, Jesus isn't just the Messiah. He is the Messiah who is also the new Adam, the new representative of humanity. So while, yes, he's the representative of Israel, he is also the representative of all humanity. And even Paul himself will use the term firstborn for that notion. But even if we think of Romans 5, right, where Paul goes in, in verses 12 through 21, um, super important section where he has his Adam Christ typology. For through the one man, death came and reigned, but then through the other man, grace comes and we reign in life through that one man. He is pitting the first Adam against the second Adam. Okay, we know that. But what we don't usually recognize is the way that Paul introduces that whole section is to say it was through his son. In verse 12, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely have we been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Just as sin came into the world through the one man. Then he goes very clearly into Adam. So for Paul, it's not difficult to say the son of God is the new Adam. This is the same person. It's not as if he talks about one in one completely foreign context or a different letter and one in this letter. No, they are always together for Paul. In Colossians, the Colossian hymn, we have him saying he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Of course, in verse 15, he is the firstborn of creation, 
which I think speaks to something different, um, a whole other conversation there we can have over, over lunch or something. But here, the firstborn of the dead is to say he is resurrected from the ground as the first human, the first new, perfect, renew, redeemed human. Of course, he didn't have to be redeemed, but on some level, his body was. His body experienced death, and it had to be redeemed. He is the firstborn of the dead, entering into that new eternal life, representing what humanity looks like. The idea of Adam, first Adam, second Adam, for Paul is critical. Because I think as you know, we talked about last night with this narrative, and there were some questions about it as well, um, especially when you think of ethics, I think it came from Scott, wherever Scott is, where we can talk about what the gospel is for individuals, the need for forgiveness. Because we have sinned, we have rejected God's laws, we have rejected our vocation, we need forgiveness, we need redemption. We need the atoning work of Christ to allow us to be back in the presence of God. But for Paul, it's not this focus on the individual that we have more, most often, um, especially in lay conversations, right? When I ask my students, uh, what does it mean to be saved? Or what is salvation in the Bible? Almost always, the answer is, I'm a wretched sinner, I need forgiveness so that I can go to heaven when I die. So I am saved from my sins, or I am saved from the wrath of God. And that is 100% true. But for Paul, it's so much more. For Paul, he's working within this cosmic world where there are evil powers that God is battling against and defeating, and he defeated them on the cross. And we receive the results of that. But when we think of the cross, if we have this idea that, um, well, let me put it this way, there's a, a, a Christian song, you know, praise song, I forget how it goes entirely and I am not going to sing it. Um, crucified, laid behind the throne, or sorry, laid, he lived to die, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled on the ground. He took the fall and he thought of me above all. Now I get that. I get the sentiment behind it. But I think when John says, for God so loved the world, he's not saying for God so loved me and you. I think it's for God so loved his entire creation, everything that he created. When, when we read Genesis 1, it's not just day 6 that he's wanting to redeem, that he's going to the cross for, but everything. So in other words, for Paul, this idea of Adam is representative of something much larger, right? All of humanity within this cosmic world in which we exist, where we are part of creation, we just happen to be the people whom God has said, okay, you have responsibilities here, right? Tigers don't have responsibilities. Elephants don't have responsibilities. Trees don't have responsibilities. But we're of the same material, hence being made out of the dust. We've just been given this vocational responsibility to do something. So, for Paul, Adam is significant. 
And Jesus then being this new representative of what humanity is meant to be is extremely significant. Not just for us having a a new relationship with God, though that is 100% there, but then to say, now we can live into what humanity is meant to be. So finally then, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 23, Paul hints at it. For since death came through a human being, the first Adam, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So he doesn't say firstborn here, but I want us to see how we can use these different words to essentially say the same thing. Jesus being this new Adam figure. So Jesus is the firstborn of a new family as the Davidic Messiah. But he is also the new Adam, the firstborn of a new humanity, which makes up that family. He is the paradigmatic and preeminent representative of a new redeemed humanity. Jesus is the perfect image of God, who in his resurrected and exalted state of both a new humanity and an eschatological family of God, brothers and sisters who participate in the life of this resurrected son. Okay, so for Paul, it has to be both. It has to be family-orientated and humanity-orientated. Israel and humanity, always together. Okay, so that's the one thing that I want to talk about that we're skipping over in terms of big lectures. The other thing is this theology of participation. Um, 1977, uh, E.P. Sanders, you probably all know the name, wrote the book Paul and Palestinian Judaism. He is a a religious uh, historian. He's not a New Testament exegete, anything like that. But he's rereading in 1977, or actually probably previous to it since his book is published in 1977. Either way, he's reading Paul's letters and he's looking at the text through not the lens of Martin Luther, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century scholars, but he's looking at the text through the lens of the first century. First century Judeo-Roman Greek and Roman world. And what he says in reading Paul's letters is that while Paul does have an emphasis on justification, yes, that's important, we are justified by faith and not by works, Martin Luther was right to say this is a big deal. But perhaps Martin Luther wasn't entirely right to make it the big deal. Because now when Protestants read Paul's letters, it is all about justification. But Sanders said, it's not all about justification for Paul. Rather, it's all about participation. Our new reality in and with Christ. And since then, Pauline scholars haven't been able to talk about Paul's theology without talking about this motif of participation. And you begin to see it when you're reading Paul's letters, looking for it, with it in mind. Every time Paul says, well, maybe not every time, but almost always, when Paul says something in Christ or with Christ, he has this idea in mind. He also uses what are soon assumed compounds, for those of you with your Greek, where he will put a word with the word with uh, in association. Wait, with. Okay, still doesn't work. Either way, he'll put with next to another word. And most often, it is dying with, being buried with, being raised with, 
suffering with and being glorified with Christ. So often he's talking about our new reality in Christ. This is what Bart picks up on. That's why Bart's essentially just a fantastic Pauline scholar because he's reading Paul in the way that Paul's meant to be read to say everything is absolutely entirely all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we come in after that. James Dunn knows that there are approximately 40 of these participatory compounds throughout Paul's letters. I want to think of these as vocational participation. They are the things that humanity does with Christ. In other words, they're not passive. To be in Christ or to be with Christ is to be active with Christ. So we have our identity in Christ, and we can think we are children of God in Christ. We are justified in Christ. I am adopted in Christ. But what that means then is that we do something with Christ. We die with Christ. That's active. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, glorified with Christ. It is active, doing. It's not passive. And we'll see a number of these participatory compounds in Romans 8. In fact, Romans 8 is entirely about participating with Christ. So when we leak them together, they essentially tell the same story. And they lead to being conformed to the image of the Son. Even conformed is a participatory compound. It's with and form. Formed with. Participating in the form of. It's the same idea as being buried with or being raised with, suffering with. So those are the two major conversations that I'm touching on, but then quickly skipping over. And they'll be in the midst of everything that comes uh, the rest of today and then tomorrow. But we have to have that in mind. So Romans 8 then. Romans 8 is about newness, redemption, hope, inclusion, and embrace. If we use... A good title for a book that's been used by a book I hope you read. It's about victory, security, purpose, community, and the ever-enduring love of God for the eschatological family of God. For the first time in Romans, Romans 8.14, Paul refers to those who are in Christ as sons of God, who in 8.15 have received the spirit of adoption. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I have Galatians up here because there's going to be a lot of overlap with what Paul says in Galatians at this point. But what Paul really does, and the the main reason for going to Galatians, is he makes this obvious, extremely clear. Verse 24 in Galatians 3, Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
And here's the verse we always use. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In this same chapter in Galatians is where Paul refers to Jesus being the seed of Abraham, right? Paul looks back on the Abrahamic covenant and he says, look, God never promised to Abraham that his many descendants would receive these promises. He said, your descendant would receive these promises. Paul reads the word that's used, that could be used as a plural or a singular, in the same way that we say deer. A deer in the field. I know that that's singular because I use the word a. But if I just say deer in the field, do you mean one or many? Same thing with Paul's use or reading of the words used in Genesis. Is it offspring as one or offspring as many? Is it seed as one or seed as many? Paul says, look, even in Genesis, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he made the promises to his seed, not to the many, but to the one. So there is one child of the Abrahamic covenant for Paul, and that is Jesus Christ, the firstborn son of God, the representative of all of Israel. And he's going to do that same thing in Romans. But the way that we, you and I, become children of God, then, is by participating in the sonship of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. We are adopted into that family through being in him. And this is why participation in Christ is so important. And as the, I said yesterday, the, the line I use with my students, what is true of him is true of us. If he is the son of God and we are in him through faith, then we also are children of God. So this is Paul's context in Romans 8. The family of God. And it's in this context that glory appears. Family relationships. So verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I'm guessing, uh, how many of you have your Bible open? Raise your hand. Well done. Look at your Bible does it make a paragraph break before or after verse 17? After. Almost always after. And I think that is one reason for why some of these things in Romans often get disjointed, or Romans 8 specifically. Because when I read what Paul is doing, verse 17 is not the end of his discussion of adoption into sonship and the spirit uh, bringing us into the family, but rather the introduction to everything that's coming from 8.17 through 8.30. I could be wrong, and it doesn't matter either way, but it helps us when we're reading to say an introduction and a conclusion to this topic. But I think if Paul were here, 
he would say, no, 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 you silly people. It's referring to everything that's coming. Can't you see? The use of the words are all the words that I use in the following verses. Um, perhaps that's why when we look at commentaries in Romans 8, commentators always seem a bit confused as to what Paul's points actually are in the following verses. We've got some lines in there on the groaning creation. Then we've got some lines on the groaning of the spirit then that we're not really sure what to make, make of. And then some hopeful stuff about how everything will turn out for good because ultimately someday we'll be like Christ and be back in the presence of God. But what creation's doing there, I don't really know. What the groaning of the spirit and intercession is there, I mean, and we'll talk about that uh, tomorrow morning. But we don't really know what to do with these verses because... They're not seen in this larger whole of verses 17 through 30. I think there's a lot more going on there than we typically realize. And we see that more clearly if we allow verse 17 and its themes of being heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, suffering with Christ, and being glorified with Christ to inform the entirety of this section. So verses 17 is going to create kind of a, a sandwich structure with verses 29 and 30. And you can see that in the words that are used. The themes are exactly the same. So, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. As God's children, we are heirs. We are adopted into God's eschatological family and are given the privilege of sharing with the firstborn in the family's inheritance. So the next question is, okay, we are children of God. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. What does it mean to receive an inheritance? What is this inheritance? For most commentators, when they read this, the inheritance is God. Because God says we are heirs of God, as if God is the object of our inheritance, rather than a more subjective inheritance, that God is giving us something from him. Could we receive God as our inheritance? Potentially. Is it receiving God himself? Is it the presence of God? Is it relationship with God? Of course, of course, all of that is there. But the word for inheritance and being heirs, for Paul, again, within his larger biblical narrative, connotes so much more than just simply a renewed relationship with God. I suggest that given that the term heir only occurs here in Romans 8, and in Romans 4, where Paul is talking about Abraham, that Paul actually has in mind the Abrahamic family, since he's talking about the covenant people of God. So let's take a look at Romans 4. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised, and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the ancestor of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham, or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, 
Faith is null and the promise is void. The children of God are not the heirs of God by keeping the law, by being Jewish, or however we want to interpret that. The children of God, the members of the covenant, are heirs of God through faith. They, like Abraham, receive the inheritance through faith. But what did Abraham inherit, or what were his descendants meant to inherit? The world. Now, how is that different, or is it, from the original Abrahamic promises. When you think back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, where the promises are given in couple, you know, several different instantiations to Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abram, go to the place that I will show you. I will make your name great. I will make, uh, you know, nations come from you. Kings will come from you. Um, you will be given the land for your ancestors to... Uh, your descendants to possess and to rule over, and all nations of the world will be blessed through you. That is the Abrahamic covenant. Isaac then carries the promises of the covenant. Jacob then carries the covenant promises, and Jacob's sons do, with Judah receiving the promise of the royal scepter. He will rule over his brothers, hence the line of kings within Israel. But the Abrahamic covenant is launched when God says, I will make your name great, I will make nations come from you, kings come from you, and I will give you this land for your people to inherit, to possess. Paul now reads that in the light of Christ, and that idea of the land is expanded to something a whole lot larger than just the promised land. The land that extends from Egypt to the Euphrates has disappeared and is replaced by the world. According to Paul, Abraham and his offspring would inherit the world, which is to say that Israel would possess and rule the world. Already in Psalm 2, another messianic psalm, David had expanded the implied promises of God to include the nations and the ends of the earth as part of the son's inheritance. So perhaps what Paul was doing was really nothing new. Even during the second temple time period, the idea of the land was expanded further and further and further to include shore to shore. But what are we to make of the idea that Abraham is heir of the world? Returning then to the theme of inheritance in Romans 8, 17. We see that Paul speaks not in terms of the Abrahamic family, but of God's family. And Jesus is the primary heir of the promises. Right? For Paul, for somebody to be in the Abrahamic covenant, to be a member of Abraham's family, is to be a child of God. Because who are the children of God? They are the people who are receiving the promises. So it's one in the same form. And Jesus is the heir, the seed to receive the promise. And now it is not the promise of this land, but the promise of the world. Which means then that those who are in Christ, who are children of Abraham, children of God, are therefore brothers and sisters of Christ. And if what's true of him is true of them, then they too share in this renewed vocation. What Adam was meant to do and what Israel was meant to do, now not just in a particular geographic space, 
but the created order, the world. He rules over the world. His people in him, children of God, are meant to rule over the world. That's why for Paul, participation in the Son's glory, being glorified with Christ, is part of Romans 8.17. Otherwise, what connection is there between being co-heirs of Christ and being co-glorified with Christ? As believers share in the firstborn son's inheritance, his possession of the world, so also will believers participate in the firstborn son's eschatological rule over that world as God's reigning representatives. And moreover, it's a passive use of the verb that we will be glorified with him, right? We are brought into that identity and established as those people. This is because believers' glory is not something intrinsic to us. It's not something that we have, right? Because we lack it. It's something that is given to us or something that we are allowed to participate in. It's external to us. We are made to share in his glory. I'm gonna move on from this, but I'm going to just throw this out there and say this relationship between suffering and glory, we're gonna come back to it tomorrow. So if you have questions about that, hold on to them. Uh, because that will be, uh, will be in all of these texts tomorrow, just from a slightly different angle. So I just want to move on when you're all thinking, wait, stop, go back. We will, but tomorrow. For now, though, let's continue to the next two verses that pertain to believers' glory. Like suffering in the previous verse, I'm not going to say much about suffering in these verses, uh, but comments on these are necessary. So let's read, continuing on. If children then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Doxa appears twice here, in verse, once in verse 18, once in verse 21. And because it's in verse 21 that Paul is actually kind of getting to the point of it all, this relationship between humanity and creation, uh, I want to start there. In fact, the relationship between creation and humanity there is the precise reason for why Paul includes this otherwise ostensibly random focus on the cursed creation at all. Unless we understand glory in the way that I am suggesting, why would Paul even go into this random, seemingly tangential excursus on creation? We're talking about being children of God. He's talking about being adopted into the family of God, the Abrahamic promises. He's going to talk about the spirit and the interceding work, and then he's going to come back to being like Christ in the family of God, being glorified. And then he's got this random thing in there about creation. Why? Why is it there? It makes zero sense 
unless it has something to do with the way Paul understands glory as something that has to do with humans in creation and that relationship. So verse 21, I actually find it helpful if we rearrange Paul's logic. So verse 20, though creation is currently subjected to decay, verse 19, it waits for God's children to be revealed. Why? Because their glory will then be reinstated. Verse 17, that glory is a glory they have as God's heirs and co-heirs with Christ. At which point, and indeed because of which, creation will again be free from its bondage to decay. Right? There is an intrinsic relationship between believers' glory and the freedom and redemption of creation itself. If glory is simply, not simply, I don't mean that in that kind of minimalist use of the term, but if it is to be in the presence of God, full stop, what bearing does our presence in the presence of God have on the redemption of creation? But if our glory is to be redeemed humans who live and act as God's representatives in the world around us, as Paul wrote in chapter two, verses seven and 10, doing good, and we'll talk a bit about what that means, then there is an actual relationship where we are called to take care of the world around us. Its redemption is on some level contingent on us. Now, mind you, I don't mean that in terms of we get to do it, but it's God working through us, but he's using us. It's part of the plan. It was part of the original plan that we would be used to take care of God's world. Let's put it another way. Verse 21, if creation will be freed from its bondage, when God's children are reinstated to glory, then creation was unwillingly subjected to decay, when, and here's the implied in the larger narrative, when God's children first forsook their inheritance of glory, when they first exchanged the glory of God or lost the glory of God, right? It happened then. And when that is undone, then creation itself finds its redemption. According to many commentators, the glory of humanity here refers to their restored relationship with God. But again, What's the point? I mean, we get the point. It's good to be restored to God in relationship, of course. But what's the point of Paul talking about the groaning of creation at this point, if that's the case? But if doxa is understood as humanity's exaltation to a renewed status of honor associated with their created vocation of having dominion over creation, then creation's renewal as a result of humanity's restored doxa makes sense. And Paul's inclusion of the groaning creation at this point actually makes a whole lot of sense. We are brought into the family of God. We are given our inheritance of the world, co-glorified with Christ through being in him as children of God. Therefore, having now a renewed relationship with the world around us over which we represent God at the right hand of God with Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, we have been raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of God. It is our reality. 
It's what humanity was created to do. So now chapter eight, verse 30. From Romans 1, 23 and 3, 23, and with Romans 2, 7 and 10, 5, 2, and all the others we've looked at, Paul's come around full circle in 8, 29 and 30 in describing humanity's response to God's intentions for it. For the majority of commentators, again, to be glorified here means to be brought into the presence of God. Um, Bdeg, the classic Greek lexicon, I'm sure most of you have on your shelves, um, maybe you use it from time to time, puts Romans 8.30 as this, under the definition of to cause, to cause, to have splendid greatness, to clothe in splendor. Okay, classic definition. One scholar writes, since doxa describes the radiance of heaven and of God in particular, in contrast to the duller shades of earth, it is natural to describe the hope for transformation to heaven in terms of doxa. Right? This is a major scholar, a very well-respected, whom I know personally and love. This verse two is one to which I'll return our thoughts to tomorrow. We're gonna come back to it and think about some of these other things going on. For today, I want to remind us of a number of points we've covered, but bring them together at this point. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It connects with 8.17. It creates a bookend to this whole section. Human relationship with the created order, our inheritance now as children of God in the family of God. It connects to 5.17, where we reign with Christ. No longer death reigning, futility, destruction reigning, but Christ reigning and us reigning in Christ. Third, it connects back to the beginning of chapter five. And if you uh, have done work on Romans, I'm guessing most of you have, you know that scholars will typically define, uh, kind of categorize Romans or section it off into Romans one through four, Romans five through eight, nine through 11, and then the rest. So five through eight is doing its own thing. The end of Romans eight connects back to the very beginning. We have this hope of glory. And now he's come full circle to say we are glorified. Back to chapter three. It's the original participation in the glory of God, which we lost or have fallen short of, whatever that could possibly mean. The glory and honor that we'll receive by doing good. And again, in 123, having exchanged the glory for another abdicating that throne originally and now receiving again that throne, right? It's not our throne, it's Christ's throne. And it's us participating in the resurrection, victorious life of Christ. What does it mean for him to be victorious? It means him to have defeated and having victory over God's enemies. It means for him to have all things in subjection under his feet, what humanity was meant to do in the beginning, we now do in him. Again, this is participating in the image of this son, this firstborn messianic king, this new Adam, the firstborn of a large family, 
the family that goes back to chapter 12 of, well, maybe technically, chapter 15 of Genesis, when the covenant is made, but chapter 12, when God calls Abram out of his homeland to make all of this happen. Finally, the verb form of doxatso here, glorified. It's an aorist, active, indicative. It's the exact same form as every single use of doxatso that we saw in the Septuagint, where every single time, without exception, it is humans receiving an exalted status of authority or rule. 100%. When the verb is used of humans, not once did it indicate anything remotely close to the idea that a human being was brought into the presence of God or being made to reflect the splendor of God. It certainly never refers to that moral transformation due to their presence in the splendor of God. Don't hear me wrongly. I'm not saying that these things won't happen. We will be made morally perfect. We will be renewed in all these ways that we hope for and long for. But what I don't want to do is say Paul is saying all of that in this. He says that in many places. And that can be underneath what he is saying about being glorified. But again, as we think back to even the questions last night about ethics and morality, do we do morality for the sake of morality? Does God want us to be perfect humans for the sake of being perfect humans? No. He wants us to be perfect humans so that we can be all that we're meant to be within the created order in the way that he established it from the very beginning. Because it's not just about you and me somehow finding forgiveness of sin so that you and I can be in the presence of God. We have a job to do. It's not all about us. It's about everything that has ever existed, and God has given us the responsibility and the privilege and the honor of being able to participate in making that happen. Bringing about that original goodness and then maintaining that original goodness that was there. So let me offer just a quick conclusion for today, this morning. What Paul sees is that those conform to the image of the Son, those who participate in the rule of Christ, are those who, though once participants in the Adamic submission to the powers of sin and death, now participate in the reign of the new Adam over creation. Mankind's position on earth as God's vicegerents to his creation is now restored though now through the image of the Son of God, who reigns as God's preeminent vicegerent. The depiction of humanity being crowned with glory and honor and established with dominion over creation in Psalm 8 is again a reality. Through both the firstborn Son of God and those who participate in his exalted status, that is, in his glory. This is the full arrival at the goal of God's intent for human beings. It is, for lack of better words, the goal of salvation. Why are we saved? Is it for ourselves? No. It is for everything. And yes, we get to benefit of being part of that. But 
It doesn't full stop end with you and me as individuals. Those conformed to the image of God's son participate in the firstborn son's sovereign position over creation as adopted members of God's family and as such as re-glorified humanity. Tomorrow, we will be back in these same verses and we will be asking, what does that look like and when will that take place? Your application, for all of those who've been looking for application. Though I hope, my goal, and, and truly my hope, is that even in these background studies, right, this hard work of getting to the point where we can say something about application, is that you can find application through all these verses. So that when you turn now to, you know, 123, you have something to say to, a, a, you know, your congregants making a sermon over Psalm 8, um, Genesis, what does it mean to be uh, human within Paul's eyes? What is Israel all about? You know, lots of different things for you to draw on. So that, that is truly my hope. But uh, tomorrow it will be more practical thinking of, so what does Paul mean by this practically? So, okay, that's what I have for you this morning. Thank you. Hi, Haley. Um, uh, I'm struggling with something. Mm -hmm. Given that we have, since the fall, a cosmos that is subjected to entropy, and the whole cosmos is dying, uh, that combined with Jesus' unequivocal, um, the unequivocal otherness of the kingdom, mm -hmm. um, I have a tough time with, and I, I'm just struggling with, um, how is it that we can talk about this world being redeemed when it's always the other world and the otherness of God's kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth by God's initiative and God's, God's changing? Um, to, put it, to put it briefly, if this world gets fixed or if it's the healing of this world, it's still um, mortal. It still dies and it's still a loss. So how is it that this dying cosmos comes to life unless a new cosmos replace it? It's a fantastic question. There's lots of conversation about it, plenty of books written, especially now as we uh, have uh, an increase in um, kind of eco-theology, uh, thinking through what is the relationship between humanity and creation, stewarding creation, all of that. Um, but it's also the question of what does it mean for there to be a new heavens and a new earth? Will the earth be burnt up and completely destroyed or will it be renewed? Right? The idea of being a new heavens, new earth, um, it's ambiguous. But the one thing I know is that Jesus found it fairly important to say the kingdom of God was coming to this earth. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I trust that, you know, in his omniscience, he knew that whatever's gonna happen to this earth, there was good reason for us to take care of it now. The physical creation itself, life on the creation, 
Because if, if we take the mentality of everything is going to be completely new someday and this whole reality is going to be done with, well then what was the point of any of Jesus' miracles? What's the point in searching for, um, um, you know, um, cures for diseases? Why try to bring any goodness, any restoration to the world? Because of what we're given to work with. So personally, I don't think that this created order is somehow going to be completely wiped away and forgotten. I think God is going to take this world and at the return of Christ, he is going to completely renew it. And yes, it will continue toward the idea of death or destruction, something like that. Um, but I think even our understanding of what that means is sometimes a bit thwarted or, or, or just off. Um, I have a, a colleague, one of our um, professors in the Whitworth Theology Department, Jonathan Moo, he's, I think next week sometime, giving a, a paper in Cambridge on what do, the, how, what do we say about natural disasters, right? Is that a result of the fall? Or is that somehow part of the original created goodness of the world? And if it's somehow part of the original created goodness of the world, then understanding our understanding of what the earth's kind of groaning is, maybe is a bit off. Um, our view of what death is maybe is off, or how we understand how that's a bad thing. Was there death in the Garden of Eden? So, I, it, in other words, there's so many questions behind that question that I don't have an answer for it other than to say, I think there is goodness here and God is redeeming and restoring this world. And therefore, we're called to where we are, time and place, in the same way that Jesus kind of demonstrated. So, yeah, thanks. Haley, um, thank you. Um, I looked at uh, Romans eight seventeen, and this may be kind of obvious, but it almost looks like Paul's saying that suffering is a necessary prerequisite for glorification. Is that how you read it? Is that, I mean, that would be Can Jesus. Can I ask you to hold the question till tomorrow oh. when we talk about suffering and glory? Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, um, I'm, I'm actually going to defer this one and say we will return to that exact question all of tomorrow morning. So, but thank you. It's an excellent question. It's necessary. It's there, which is why so much more time will be given to it. But yeah, good insight. I'm, I'm wondering why it might be helpful our perspective of the perfecting of the created order, might it be helpful whether we, or difference whether we view that God is gonna come and make his home with us, or whether we're gonna to go to God and make our home with him? That's excellent. Um, and yeah, it, okay, so I would say 100%, I am a product of my mentor, my supervisor. I think 100% heaven is here. I do not think that somehow, someday, we will be floating off to some other place, you know, somehow behind just past Pluto. Um, it, it, right? The idea that heaven is up there is, I think, a Platonic understanding of what Jewish understandings of 
God's reality in the world was, right? The, this distinction between the physical world and the spiritual realm, as if one is bad and one is good, and we're trying to escape this place. I don't think we're going up there to live with God. I think God is returning here to make this his dwelling place in the same way that in Genesis 1, God dwelt with his creation in his creation. Right? This is the, the beauty of biblical theology, um, temple theology. When you think of Genesis 1, um, Genesis 1, the created order is kind of two main things. It's the kingdom of God over which God rules, and it's a temple of God. Think of what a temple is, that God dwells in the temple. In the tabernacle and in the temple that Solomon built, you have the Holy of Holies. And God dwelt in that space. It is the meeting place between heaven and earth. It's where these two things come together. But when they had to put up, establish the tabernacle and then build the temple, yes, it's good because it meant that God was dwelling there, but it's really also still quite bad because God was contained behind walls and only one person, the high priest, could access God. It's not the way it was meant to be. But the Garden of Eden is this kind of cosmic temple where God dwells with his creation in the earth. The physical realm is good and beautiful and holy, and it's a place where God can live and dwell with his people. Right? He's walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then they're exiled from the presence of God, and from that time onward, they're trying to get back into the presence of God. But actually, the narrative isn't them trying to get into the presence of God. It's trying to get God to come to them. Because they have God in the temple, but then as whoever the question was from uh, Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of God departing when they go into exile. So Israel goes into exile. They're there for 70 years. They come back under Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And we have the end of the Old Testament ending on a very solemn note. Because we've got the temple, God, but where are you? You've not returned. You've not returned to dwell in the midst of your people. When are you coming? For the first time in their history, they want to worship God. And of course, at that time, they are under the rule of either the Persians or the Greeks and eventually the Romans. And for the first time in their history, they're not allowed to do so. So the... The question is, is God, when will you return? When will you send your Messiah to liberate us from these powers so that we can live the way that you want us to live? We want to be faithful now. That's the, the formation of Judaism in the intertestamental time period, right? We don't have Sadducees and Pharisees in the Old Testament. We have them in the New Testament because Judaism arises in this intertestamental time period when they're under the rulership of the Greeks. And you have people like Antiochus Epiphanes, who is just this despot. He is this horrible ruler who is persecuting the Jews and forbidding them from keeping the law. He forbids them from making sacrifices. He forbids them from keeping Sabbath. He forbids them from um, practicing circumcision. And then you have the Maccabean revolt where they say enough is enough. We will be Jews and we will follow the covenant laws. But the question in the midst of all of that is, God, where are you? We look around and we see that we are oppressed and it doesn't look like you're reigning. 
And that's why we have apocalyptic literature, because they're saying, God, we know that you say you're in charge, but we don't see it. So who's in charge? And the answer is, okay, God is in charge. He's on his throne. He's doing battle with the evil powers. And one day he will send his Messiah and he will return to us. So the idea is that he is here. Heaven is here. Um, when Jesus comes from heaven, it's not so much that he's literally coming from heaven, but he's appearing out of heaven. He's being revealed, right? We, all of us believe that God is in our midst right now. Yes? I hope so. The Holy Spirit is here. God is here. Is God out there dwelling in a heaven that's separate from the earth? No, heaven is here. God is here. But we're still now this side of the new heaven, new earth, when these two things are brought together completely and wholly, as it was in Genesis 1, as it was in the Holy of Holies, as it was in the person and incarnation of Jesus Christ. Right? Heaven and earth together, physical and spiritual. God on earth, walking around. It's a beautiful aspect of the entire biblical narrative. So yes, when we think about heaven and salvation, where are we going? I'm coming here. I'm, I'm sticking around. I'm going to be hiking in these woods. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. But I, I do firmly think that Paul believed, and we can see it in the Gospels, that this is the place where God is doing redeeming work because one day God will dwell fully here not kind of out there. And so I agree, that makes a huge difference in how we think about the created order and it coming, kind of, coming to its perfected state. There's no point in, in trying to help this created order if it's all gonna be kind of wiped away. But if this is where heaven and earth are gonna to come together again eventually, we've got a whole lot of incentive to make this a wildly good place. So thank you.